Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. The great film auteur Paul Mazursky died on June 30, 2014, at the age of 84. Originally a stand-up comic and actor, Mazursky got his start writing for the Danny Kaye show and the Monkees on television. His first screenplay was for I Love You, Alice B. Toklas, starring Peter Sellers, and his first film as director was the hit comedy Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. After that, he never looked back, writing and directing such films as Harry and Tonto, An Unmarried Woman, Moscow on the Hudson, Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Moon Over Parador, Tempest, and Enemies, a Love Story. This book seems structured to me more like a movie than like a book. It's, it's mm-hmm. not quite in chronological order, but the order does make sense. Yeah, well, I, I have a preface in which I say by, I've always wanted to make people smile or laugh, and that was my main intention. And, and one day I was sitting in the office trying to figure out what to do next. I remembered this great incident with Peter Sellers when I had written I Love You, Alice B. Toklas, which Peter starred in, and I had an amazing series of, of events with him. And I wrote it down. Then I wrote the Stanley Kubrick chapter. I was in Stanley Kubrick's first picture. And that sort of seemed to cover my days when I was 20, 21, 22, right up to my first job in the movies. And I sent these 50 pages to uh, Michael Corda, and he liked it and said, keep going. It's not once upon a time I was born. It kind of interweaves, and it, it actually is kind of filmic. Your first chapter does deal with Peter Sellers, and he comes across as stark, raving nuts. Well, he was pretty loony. He was a manic depressive, a brilliant actor. I'm sure you've seen Dr. Strangelove, Lolita, and... Being Inspector there. Clouseau, being there, fantastic. He was like the guy in being there at times. He was, he was uh, very strange. And what happened, to make the story short, is that I wanted to direct my first picture that I had co-written, but my agent said, don't bring up directing to Peter because he's going to want to go for some big directors. I said, okay, and he, and he kind of intimated to me that Peter was an odd bird. Be careful. Just you're the writer. Maybe the directing will come your way. So the first thing that happens, Sellers says, who do you think should direct? I said, well, I'm not sure, Peter. He said, I'd like Freddie Fellini to direct this film. I said, Peter, Fellini is Italian. He doesn't know about Jewish lawyers in L.A. dropping out and becoming hippies. Nevertheless, I want Fede Fellini, Federico Fellini. So we gave Fellini the script. He, I don't think he ever even got it. The agent must have just said him. And he called back and said, Fellini's busy. And he went to Bergman. 
That's how crazy he was. Ingmar Bergman. Ingmar Bergman cannot do a movie about hippies in L.A., you know? Bring Ingmar Bergman to Berkeley, you know, take the first plane back. He's afraid. So finally, Peter rejected 10 more people. I brought a guy in named Jonathan Miller, who was a wonderful Dr. Jonathan Miller. He directed opera. He had done a movie version of Alice in Wonderland. Peter thought it was a great idea. We flew him in from London. I was there in the room with me, Larry, my partner, Peter, and and Jonathan Miller, and they were so much embracing you. I said, well, this is going to be great. Hugging, kisses. And Jonathan said something about an idea he had for music. I don't remember the exact phrase. And the minute Peter heard it, he said, I think you should take the next plane back to London. Everyone kind of looked at him. This is what he was like. He came on the set. One day, he said he would say good morning to everybody. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. Nice to see you. Hello, sir. Hello. And he suddenly turned white, rushed into his dressing room. What's the matter, Peter? June Sampson's wearing purple. Purple is death. Sophia told me that. Purple means death. So we'd run out to this poor uh, script girl. June, you got to get another sweater. He can't. He's got a lot of wear purple in front of him. But me mum knit it well. The stories go on and on. Sellers was able to do this because he had so much power. He had so much power, but my my understanding from people I spoke to is that he always had a touch of this going. I know people knew him very well. He was always odd. Uh, you can be a brilliant performer and be odd, let's face it. You can be a brilliant garbage man and be odd. But Sellers did have... Uh, at that time, he was making $750,000 a picture in 1968. Would be well, 10 times that today. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be in the Tom Cruise area. Yeah. And, and and he was he was serious about divorcing his wife because yes. you gave her a kiss on the cheek? Yeah, I was named as the correspondent. They had a lawyer. It was all going to happen. I was going out of my mind with fear and craziness. And uh, five days later, it was all. He changed his mind. And then he called me up. <laughs> I went to the house to meet him, and he wept in my arms. The part that you describe in, in your book, Show Me the Magic, where there would be someone on the set, and he would decide, I'm not talking to that person, but he wouldn't stop communicating. Everything would have to go through. Like, I would say to Walensky, ask Paul Mazursky what he wants for lunch. You would but have that, to tell Walensky, and he would have to tell me. Yeah, but that's that was his relationship with Blake Edwards. Blake Edwards was the director of the Pink Panther a series, Spectacle and he didn't talk to Blake. And this is through all the many movies that they did? Only the first one. Oh, After the first, the first one, it was over. So when I went on the set, they were shooting uh, The Party, and I see Sellers, who I already knew, and I see Blake Edwards, and big talent. And Edwards says to the assistant director, uh, Charlie, would you ask Mr. Sellers if it's comfortable for him to cross on the line such and such, pick up the phone, answer it, and then cross back and sit? And Peter would try it. Tell Mr. Edwards I'm totally comfortable. Thank you. Bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> but he wouldn't say, Blake, it's okay. No, no, no. He wouldn't refer to him. Now, look, he did the same thing with me at the beginning of the shooting because I was out as the director, no chance. And the the early shooting, by the second day, he was calling me into his dressing room, a big trailer, to see the shots that I, because I wasn't permitted on the set. 
to see the first two shots. And he would say, ask Mr. Mazursky his opinion of this shot. And I would look at it and say, well, tell Mr. Sellers, I think the shot is good. It might be more amusing if he tripped going up the step or something. I want to go up the steps and trip. This is all true. You know, you can't make it up. But I have a lot of affection for him in spite of it all. You've worked with several uh, extraordinary people in your career, some as directors, some working alongside them as actors. Uh, was he the, the nuttiest uh, that you ran oh, yeah, across? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, most of them are not nutty. You know, Peter, I love you wherever you are. He, he was clinical. He, he, it was real stuff. You made a movie called The Pickle. Pickle. Which came and went in a day, and I managed to catch it on video. It's a very, very funny movie. What happened to it? Well, you're asking a profound question, and I'll give you a simple answer. When a studio decides that a movie is not going to make money, in their opinion, based on their marketing research, they throw it away. And that's what happened to the pickle. They were afraid it would be too inside, et cetera, et cetera, and they did nothing to help it. It's it's one of my favorite odd curious films you know there's a certain amount of personal stuff in there he's a guy about my age now harry the the hero who's been on hard times now for 10 years he's got a 20 year old girlfriend in france he lives there but he's broke 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 and broker from paying a lot of alimonies and his agent calls and says there's a job take a job it's a teenage science fiction movie He's not the guy to do it about a flying cucumber called a pickle. And he makes the movie. It's the worst. He hates it. It's so stupid. And it turns out to be a big hit. That's what it's about. Uh, they just threw it away. Has the view of these studio heads changed? I mean, over the past 30, 40 years, what have you seen? I was the king uh, in the 70s and, and the 80s. The director... I don't want to use a word like auteur because there weren't many of us who actually wrote and directed our own scripts. I was one of them. Uh, but the director was the important figure. Stars were important, but the director was the guy they hired or the woman they hired who who they said, this guy, he's going to deliver. We trust him. Here's the money. Go make the movie. We'll see you when it's over. And I had that for 20 years. That's pretty good. In the late 80s or 90, early 90s, a corporate level thing took over the movie business. They're all owned by corporations. They're no longer the sons or grandsons of rag pickers and, and, and people like that. So they don't have the passion for greatness. Maybe the Miramax guys do because they're different. But they don't have that passion. They have a passion to catch the, the brass ring on the merry-go-round that might make a $200 million movie. 300 million. If you're going to make a little movie like Enemies of Love Story or The Pickle, that's going to cost 10. So what if it makes 20? They'll make a little profit, but that, they're not interested in that. They want big. What do you think would happen if, I know this is impossible, but if the old studio system were somehow recreated? Well, I don't think it could be given the way things are now. I mean, I, that, that that's a science fiction movie. <laughs> okay. Because, you know, I mean, you, you now have about 25 actors and actresses who basically call the shots. If Bruce Willis or Harrison Ford or, or Julia Roberts or those people want to make a movie, if they, they want to make a movie about my wristwatch 
they're going to get it made. I want to make the wristwatch movie. Go to it, Julia. We love that movie. When I go in with a script now, I, I don't mean to sound like I'm complaining. I'm just trying to explain to you the difference. There's no star attached. Then it's really all content, and they don't read. If you had the old studio system, what it would mean is the stars don't have that power. Warner Brothers had Errol Flynn and John Garfield and this one and that one, and Fox had Tyrone Power. Those were different times. And if an actor wouldn't do something, they'd suspend him. And the studios were run by guys who had very strong links with, with the, the theater. What a group of writers we were out here in those days. You know, Robert Benchley and Billy Wilder. I think the movie thing is really a good symbol for everything that's happening. I suspect the next time I go in and pitch a movie, maybe next year, Instead of pitching to eight faceless executives, I'll tell it to a computer. I'll type in my idea. I'll wait for a response. I'll hear a beep, and I'll know I'm finished. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's different now. What happens when you get involved with, with a project, as, as you have more than most, where you're wearing several hats? Can you be the writer and the director, the director and an uh -huh. actor all at the same time? Well, there's difficulty in it, but I managed to do it for a long time and I still do. Uh, I have very strong support people working for me who you, I encourage to open their mouths and be critical. That, that's the thing you got to really look for. I had a great Chilean partner named Pato Guzman who was my production designer for 30 years. Uh, and then he later became my co-producer. You can do it. The only fear is lack of objectivity, but as I often say, to uh, students, I, I, that phrase bothers me because I'm interested in subjectivity. One such instance was a film of yours called Move, Moon Over Parador. Uh -huh. Did you write that as well? Yeah, as I co-wrote it. Yeah. And you also played Richard Dreyfuss's mother. Yes. Which is how many people knew that? Uh, a lot didn't. What happened was I had hired Judith Molina, a brilliant actress from the Living Theater. Her agent made a terrible mistake and booked her into directing an opera at a small college in Germany. And I shot Munova Parado in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And I was two days away and I couldn't get her. I didn't know why. I was panicky and I had to shoot the scene because I had this opera house in Rio where the mother, the dictator's mother, is coming to see him. So I said to Richard Dreyfus, I can't find anybody. I'm going to play the mother. <laughs> Your mother. And Richard said, you better read for me. I read for but I got the part. <laughs> How, uh, when you're doing that and when you're actually performing, particularly when you're performing in, yeah. in uh, let's say, a non-traditional role, <laughs> yeah. uh, how easy is it to maintain control of the set at that well, point? Well, it's not too hard. They respected me and they had video playback and I would go look at the takes and I'd have Pato with me. And uh, it's somebody else too, I forget who. Dreyfus, we just take a look at the video and say, it's good, let's go on. You made a movie called Down and Out in Beverly Hills, which rescued the careers of both Bette Midler and, uh, and Richard Dreyfus. Uh, it seems odd in the case of Midler that you were the first person to spot that she had potential as a comic actress because the movie with Don Siegel, she wasn't particularly funny in the Rose. She, she was hit a drama. Him. did you know that? Hmm? She hit Oh, yeah, she, well, that's a famous story, she sure. Belted. She told me when I met her, she said, you know, the last guy I worked for, I belted you don't want to work with me. I'm trouble. <laughs> I said, come on, Bet. You're not trouble. I, I love Bet Midler. Well, she'd been wonderful in The Rose. 
Not that that wasn't funny, but she was wonderful. But comic, I mean, no, that wasn't hard. Dreyfus had had a bad incident, you know, it turned over in a car on, I don't know, Santa Monica Boulevard. I think he was under the influence of Coke or something. And when I told him I wanted him for this movie, he said, I said, do you want to play the, the bum or Dave Whiteman? He said, I'll play the dog. I want to be in this movie. And, and he did. And then I got Nick Nolte, and it all turned out okay. I, there's stuff in, in my book, Show Me the Magic, where I tell about how, how I got to those people. Uh, you also uh, have spent time with Elia Kazan, mm. and you've also worked with people who were blacklisted. I'm curious about how you stood and how you dealt with the entire Kazan controversy. Um, I, the Oscars? Yeah. I knew you were going to bring this up, but it's a good question. Let's go back. In 1954 uh, and five, around those two years, three, four, four, five, I studied acting in New York with a man named Paul Mann. Paul was a brilliant actor who had been blacklisted and lost just about all his opportunity to work, except in the theater, but certainly on live television. And he became a teacher, and I studied with him, and I became his secretary in order to have a cheaper class payment. And one day, Paul asked me to go see the opening night of, I, it was either on the waterfront of Zapata, I don't remember, and uh, he hated Kazan because of what Kazan had done. Kazan had spoken, you know, talk, name names, et cetera. And in the lobby, I saw Paul spit in Kazan's face, right in front of me. I'll never forget it. Dissolve. Seven, eight, nine years later, Kazan is directing an Arthur Miller play called After the Fall on Broadway, and Paul Mann is in it. Dissolve. Kazan makes a movie called America, America, and Paul Mann plays the father. So Kazan, or Paul Mann, or Arthur Miller turned the other cheek. They they despised him. Miller thought he was the best guy to direct his play, and he, he said, look, he did what he did. Time has passed, etc." That's the background to this story. When I was making Alice B. Toklas, I got a call from a guy named Charlie McGuire who said, 1968, I was preparing it. And he said, uh, I hear you're a good tennis player. I said, I'm pretty good. He said, well, Gadge is coming out. LA and needs a partner, would you play with him? I said, yeah. So I used to play with him at a public park twice a week for about six to eight weeks. And we never talked about politics, never talked about show business, just played tennis and very bright, amiable, whatever. But also, you know, underneath everything that's happening in the relationship, it's Kazan. It's on the waterfront. It's, it's death of a salesman. It's all those things that shaped my you know, my, my idea of acting in the theater and whatever. And then I meet him at a New Year's party at Arthur Krim's house. And uh, I've by now started directing and I made Bob and Carol. And Kazan says to me, kid, you did a real good movie. That's good. And that was like, made me feel good. Dissolved to 1981 or so. I'm casting Tempest with John Cassavetes. And I think of Kazan to play uh, his father. And there's a long story in my book, which I won't tell now, but he turned me down in, in a very interesting way. Now we dissolve to uh, a few months ago, uh, March, Academy Awards. The Academy Board decides 
to give a special award to Kazan. I'm on the board, by the way. I was one of the 35 people there. An impassioned speech was made by Carl Malden. I thought this was the Academy of Arts and Sciences, not politics. If it's arts and sciences, well, you know who I'm going to name. You've seen his movies. You know those movies. You know Streetcar. You know Zapata. You know this one. You know that one. And 35 people said, I, including me. The next day, I thought about it, and I said, why bring this upon the Oscars, which are, you know, so banal that, what can I say? But he's already won two Oscars. He's not going to recant. He's not going to come out on the stage at the age of 82 or 3 and say, I'm sorry. He's not going to do it. Everybody was confused, including me. Will you stand? Are you going to sit? Are you going to applaud? On top of that, I'm invited to a dinner. This is not in the book yet because it already just happened. I'm invited to a dinner for Kazan by the Directors Guild. I say I'm going. I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm totally against what Kazan did in, in the early 50s. Horrible. You know, he did. He made a deal so he could continue working. And he rationalized it by saying these people were communists. They knew most of the names anyway. And I think communism really had taken hold and, and screwed endless amounts of people who were, who were blind to what was going on with Stalin and the death camps and the Google, you know, all that stuff. And at the dinner... There were like eight people, big empty table. It was Warren Beatty, me, Mark Rydell, Barry Primus, Robert Townsend, I don't know, a few others, his son, his wife. He's got a gorgeous wife, about 40 years old. And I felt saddened by the whole thing, and I felt confused, as I told you. I'm glad I went, glad I did it, but there is no resolution to this thing. So in the end, what you come away with it from is... Does one participate in a healing process, or can you have a healing process, where the guy didn't recant? You say, okay, that's it. That's what happened. That's it historically, onward. Because you can go on forever with these things. My lesson came when Paul acted in those two things, and Miller, who I know, let him direct the play. That's turning the cheek big time. Of course, he was... You know. He was a genius. Yeah. One of the themes that comes up in your book over and over again is comedy, the nature of comedy, the question of what's funny. And the question uh, that struck me and, and I know struck my partner, Richard Walensky, is the very peculiar nature of a man named Danny Kaye, now deceased, forgotten by a lot of people, but also remembered by a lot of people. Well, Danny was a brilliant performer. I mean, he... We'll never forget him in the movies with those, you know. I got the coochie, catch coochie, but you put you, but the git, gat, get all that stuff. And he could sing and dance and, and entertain. Oh, he was, how shall I say, graceful. And he had taste and red hair. And he, he was quite wonderful. But he wasn't really funny to me personally. I, I like irony and satire. Uh, irony and satire doesn't always sell. Danny was much more for, you know, he'd do a funny sneeze, catch his hand on the drawer, he'd do a great accent, and he was great on the Danny Kay show. But knowing him personally, uh, he wasn't a funny man, not really. But he was a good guy. 
One thing Dick pointed out to me, because Dick said he'd seen a lot of Kay's movies recently. Well, uh-huh. let, let, let me interrupt. I, okay. I saw a lot of his movies as a child. Yeah. And I, I thought, you know, Wonder Man and, and Secret Life of Walter Mitty and The Kid from Brooklyn and these <laughs> pictures were just wonderful and that he was a comic genius. And I was about 11 years old. Right. Within the past year or so, for God knows what reason, I went out of my way either to catch them on uh, television or to rent mm-hmm. videos and watch these. And while his performance, as you say, Paul Mazursky, is impeccable, somehow it's just not funny. No. Well, when you're a kid, a lot of things are funny. <laughs> I suppose. Uh, I don't really know. It's just, it's like he didn't get the joke. You know, if you if you see a, mo- uh, a television show today and, a rerun of something, and you see Jack Benny do that old joke where he, well, any old joke that he does, or he does it a long take, you know, Rochester, this is a stick up. Your money or your life? Long pause. Bob Hope was funny. Lenny Bruce was funny, except at the very end he wasn't funny. Jonathan Winters can be funny. Comedians often are not funny personally because they don't laugh at any jokes. You tell a comedian, comedian a joke, he'll, he'll say uh, a good joke, and the comedian will say, good, 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 funny, funny, very funny. It's good, good joke, good, very good. <laughs> <laughs> what, what we discovered here is that when we had on comic writers and comedians and we'd interview them, they either regurgitated their old material mm. or they weren't funny. They couldn't just come up with jokes. I guess Robin Williams would be an exception to that, or would he? Well, Robin, I directed in... Uh, Moscow on the Hudson, not as a comedian. He had done a, a garp. And he was very good. And Robin's a brilliant actor. I wish he'd play more parts like the one he did in Moscow. He's he's funny. He can be very funny with you. He he can take off at a moment's notice and do a ten minute riff on on a popsicle. I mean, he's kind of amazing. Uh, when you say uh, you wish that he could do more, you mean rather than well, repeating Patch the, the Adams, Patch Adams all those stuff? things are so so saccharine that uh, he'll Danny K himself. Uh, by the way, I want you to understand, Danny never mistreated anybody in, in my four years. We had great times, and I liked him. He would never fess up uh, in my conversations. I told him I was from Brownsville in Brooklyn, where I'm from, and I went to Thomas Jefferson High School, and he had... Both of those experiences didn't want to talk about it. Would rather talk about Sandy Koufax or flying the Learjet or Princess Margaret, who he had some kind of relationship with, you know? Do you ever miss being a stand up comic? Do you ever get the urge to just get well, on a stage in front of 30 people in a, in a dingy nightclub? It's a great question. Look, it's the toughest thing there is to do. And when you score, it's the most exhilarating. Last night, I uh, showed clips from six movies and answered questions in Marin County, St. Raphael, about 300 people. I had them on the floor. I felt like the old days. I'm I'm good at it. I can really do it. I told him some jokes, Schwartz meets Conan in the Garment District. He says, <laughs> he says, I heard about the fire. He says, shh, tomorrow. I sang Joe and Joe and Paul Safaganigan. Joe and Paul against the bargain Kriegen, a sweet, a quite a gabardine, brings the rain, a clean the scene. I, I did a lot of funny stuff with him. I like it. I miss it. Maybe I should do a one-man show. Whatever became of Herb, Herb Harting? Herb has passed away. Oh. 
When I did my comedy act, I started with a partner. His name was Herb Harding. He was a very handsome fellow with a very rich, deep voice who was, in all the years I knew him, writing a novel, as many of the young fellows in the Greenwich Village in those days, we were all writing novels or something like that or or a two-line poem, a haiku. In the winter, I'm a Buddhist. In the summer, I'm a nudist. We teamed up, and we decided to call the act Igor Mazursky, you know, my nickname or something, and H, small H, standing for Herb Hardy. And we were together for, uh, you know, about four years. Then that marriage broke up. We played a lot of sophisticated clubs, and one of the big influences on our career was Julius Monk, who was an amazing fellow, the first American I'd met who spoke like a British fellow who had cuffs on his suit jacket that came back with a button. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Julius Monk. May I direct your attention and applause? And he, he saw us audition our would-be comedy act, and he's the first guy to give us real encouragement. I'll never forget it. Yeah, he was a, a great nightclub entrepreneur. Nightclub entrepreneur, but a guy who cared about talent. So, so many people in those days started with him, you know, Nichols and May and, and singers, too. Two of your more recent works I'd like to ask you about. First is Winchell. You did it for HBO. It aired to, if I recall, some kind of critical acclaim. Yeah. Uh, Stanley Tucci won an award for his acting. What prompted you to go into cable, and were you hoping for that to be a, uh, a theatrical release? No, I knew it was I knew it was going to be cable because HBO offered it. Now, look, HBO, to explain very quickly to your listeners, you know, they have, a, they have an ad line that they use. It's HBO, not television. Well, it's true. You have to pay for it to get it, and they have no, no commercials. I won't do television with commercials. I'd never done it, and I won't do it. I mean, I've done it years ago when I was, before I wrote movies. I did it because I, I read the script and I thought it was exciting. And I said, will you leave me alone? I'll make this. I'd like to do it. And they had consultation on casting three parts. I hired the cameraman I wanted, the editor I wanted, production designer I wanted. And all in all, I had a great time. I was hoping that when it was over, by some miracle, which didn't exist, they would say, gee, this is so good. Why don't we try to release it? as a picture. They didn't do that. They never do. They really don't. Well, in terms of the amount of time that you have to make the movie and budget, what's compared that? It's a little quicker. The, the budget's less. I've always prepared more than most people prepare, but I'm willing to pay for my own. In other words, I don't care if they put me on salary or not. I'm going to spend an extra month and a half, two months. I don't need it. I, I'll just do it. You get a little less time, let's say 25% less time. And you get less money. Winchell cost nine five. It's not chopped liver. Uh, but I dealt with 1904 up to 1974. So it's period, and period cost money. Uh, you also acted in Two Days in the Valley. Is that your most recent acting No, movie? I just finished acting in a movie last week, uh, two weeks ago, with William J. Macy, the great actor from Fargo, where I play a big-time director. Not me. I like to act. For me, acting is like a holiday. You know, I come in, they pick you up, they drive you to the thing in a car. You have your coffee, they take care of your hair, they put a little makeup on you, you act, you finish, you go home. The director is, he ain't going home. He's got to worry now about tomorrow, the budget, the weather, 
the neurotic actor, the actress is driving him out of it, or whatever those things are. I mean, I'm happily going home to watch, uh, I don't know, the news or something. <laughs> so directing's tough. There is a, a popular maxim that came out of Hollywood that, to the effect of nobody tries to make a bad movie, and yet so many bad movies get made. <laughs> well, you know, I think it would be fair to say nobody tries to make a bad movie, but an awful lot of people who make movies are not that smart and don't have good taste. I think they think they're doing a good job. Uh, they, they probably never read the script. Because some of them are so bad that you can't believe it. Let's look on the positive side and be amazed at how much good stuff is still there. Marty is still makes Scorsese some very good movies. Uh, Jonathan Demme, uh, Bob Altman. Bob is not a Hollywood. You know, he listens to his own tune. And uh, take, it or, take it or leave it, that's what he does. It seems that... If you're improvising and you're creating a movie through improvisation and brilliant ideas, and then you run up against the new CGI backgrounds and everything and the extra money being put in and the fact that everything has to be scripted before it's tested, mm. aren't movies like the new Star Wars going to become more the norm? Movies that can't be better because all of the electronic stuff has been added to stuff that may not have worked in the first place? Well, first of all, let me I, let me preface it. I don't do much improvising in my movies. I might do improvising in my rehearsals, but in my movies, 99% of it is scripted. It's open a little bit. An actor will say to you, Gee, do, do I have to drink water? I said, no. You want to drink iced tea? Drink? I don't care. Woody Allen said to me when he was going to do scenes for a mall, I love the script, but on page 80 it says uh, he, uh, he cries. And Woody said to me, I can't cry. <laughs> which I thought was great. Uh, the other thing, okay, you basically have to direct actors who are talking to a blue screen. It's very difficult, and I don't think you have much freedom in that sense. Uh, I'm not a master of that stuff. I've done it a little bit. Uh, Lucas is a master. Spielberg is a master. I think they enjoy it and know how to do it. It's It's not a question of good or bad. It's really... It's really different. It's different. It doesn't appeal to me deeply. It, it can be entertaining, but I mean, I don't know. I saw the first Star Wars. I, I prefer 2001. But what can I say, you know? There's no irony in Star Wars. It's made for kids and brilliantly. Is there a problem in your career, your, your own career, of being typed as a comic director so that you have problems getting films which are not funny. And I'm, and I'm thinking of Winchell immediately. No, because I got Winchell very easily. They, as soon as I said I wanted to do it, they seemed to get excited. I made Bloom and Love, a serious film about divorce, Enemies of Love Story, Holocaust Survivors, and all that serious stuff, but with comic stuff in it. My favorite movies always have been movies that are, on, and on the one hand, very serious, on the other hand, very funny. Vitelloni, uh, Fellini. It's a great movie about Vitelloni means the fatted calves. And you know, Fellini, it's in the book. He was a very good friend of mine. Uh, and these four young men in uh, this town that Fellini grew up in, Rimini, and they don't know what to do after the war. It's post-World War, you know, 1947 or so, eight 
and they just sort of wander around and they get into some funny scrapes and then suddenly it turns emotional and you, you feel like weeping. I'll never forget seeing that picture. Uh, it really influenced me. Uh, Billy Wilder at his best, you know, Sunset Boulevard. It has odd humor, but it's it's overwhelming, you know, but fantasy, fantasy lives. Uh, Preston Sturgis, very funny. The master. Uh, but serious stuff underneath it about corruption, about the rich trying to understand what the poor are like. He made fun of a lot of things. He was great. His ultimate movie was Sullivan's Travels. Oh, great. That's the one I'm talking about, yeah. An unmarried woman. Now, what about that in terms of mixing humor and pathos and serious yeah. themes? Yeah, that's a serious movie. There's no question about it. What does a woman do when, uh, you know, a reasonably long-term marriage breaks up? A terrible dilemma it goes on every day. And I got the idea, and I wrote that myself, when a friend of ours, a woman, bought a house in Los Angeles, and it was the first house that she owned since her divorce 10, 12 years before. And next to her name, it gave her name, Carolyn Miller. Uh, it said, an unmarried woman. And I thought the fact that it said an unmarried woman was bizarre because it, it doesn't say about a man, an unmarried man. So I got this idea and I started interviewing women and th this picture came out of it. I love to mix comedy and, and whatever, whatever you want to call it, not tragedy necessarily, but darker stuff. You know, I have a chapter in the book and I don't know what led me to write it, maybe frustration, called The Ones I Never Made. And, and it's, excuse me, it's about six or seven movies that, scripts that I have that I haven't gotten the money for. And there's a couple of great ones in there. The Pictures of Fiddleman, based on a novel by Bernard Mollenwood, painter fails in New York and goes to Italy to try to find artistic answers and ends up in great. It's a, it's a wonderful book and I think it's a good script. But that one's good. I've got one, a sequel to Down Out in Beverly Hills, which I can't even tell you why they didn't want to do it, where the Whitemans uh, lose their money and they go broke. It's hilarious. Hilarious beyond belief. They're saved by little Richard. And Dave Whiteman, you know, the Richard Dreyfus character, gets a job in a, in a, a Bob's Burger King. Think he's desperate. <laughs> it's really funny. I've got one called Freddie Faust, which I really would like to do, and I, I'd like to play the part. I'm, I'm fooling around with this right now. It's a comedy writer who's on hard times. Guy who's won the Oscar, won the Emmy's done everything, but he's been in uh, two bad marriages and the jobs have fallen away. He's kind of broke, nothing's happening. And one day he gets a new computer program and meets the devil who offers him oh. 10 years of everything. I won't tell you the rest. And is, is uh, that the one that you're trying to pitch right now? I'm not pitching it, I'm trying to get money. Is that what you mean? Well, a, yeah. A pitch is when you want to get money to write a script. Once the script's done, you don't pitch. You just give them the script and pray that somebody who actually can read is reading it. You don't know. So you're you're trying to raise the money for the yeah, film now. Yeah, yeah. And I have another project I'm working on called Hot Friday, which was written by Leon Capitanos, who wrote uh, five or six movies with me. He's a wonderful writer. He wrote Down and Out, Tempest. If you get to make Freddie Faust, do you think you could get Walter Houston to play the devil? Devil and Daniel Webster. Yes. Well, I've made the devil uh, uh, more like Gates, and I think it's pretty apt. 
I saw Gates on last night. He's very, very charming in his own weird way. Paul Mazursky, Show Me the Magic, is a very funny and very good read. Have you ever given thought to writing a novel? Yeah. I'd like to write another book because you get uh, a terrific sense of satisfaction. Uh, and while it's difficult, you don't have a lot of people looking over your shoulder. You don't even have to hire a composer, you, you know, et cetera. You have an editor. I had Michael Corda, as, as I said, and, and his right-hand man, Chuck Adams. But I don't know if I could write a novel. I, I've written 23 or 4 screenplays. I wrote this book. A novel something else. I, I don't know. I really don't know. But have I had the end too? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I could do it. You've been listening to an interview with the late film director Paul Mazursky, conducted in September 1999 during the tour for his memoir, Show Me the Magic. After that interview, Mazursky's career wound down. He only had two directorial credits afterward, one for a made-for-TV film titled Coast to Coast, starring Richard Dreyfus, and the other for a documentary, Yippee, about Jews living in the Ukraine. He did, however, continue to act. None of the films he mentions at the end of the interview were ever produced. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>